0: Genesis chapter 3, we'll look at verses 16 through 20 this morning. Uh, the statement I'm going to make is not a hard one to figure out or even uh, believe. It's, uh, it's guys and girls are very different. Uh, I remember the first time I learned that lesson. Uh, I was in middle school, and in middle school, I was pretty self-conscious about how skinny I was. I, I was always a really skinny kid growing up. Uh, I weighed 85 pounds playing JV basketball. I was, I think, 120 pounds when I got married to Jess. I don't weigh that anymore, um, but I was just crazy skinny, and so I was always self-conscious about it, and so uh, people would joke around with me being so skinny, and so this, um, the, the first time I learned that guys and girls are different because uh, was when this girl told me how skinny I I was. And so here, here's the thing about me. Um, I've learned how to be very quick-witted, quick on my feet. I, I can be pretty harsh sometimes if I'm really challenged, and like I, the redhead ginger comes out a little bit. And so I'm, I'm quick um, on what I say in response to things. And this one girl uh, who wasn't as skinny as me told me, Ben, you are so skinny. You look just like Kermit the Frog. Now, 11-year-old Ben, quick-witted, said, well, at least I don't look like Miss Piggy. (laughs) And then she started crying. And I was just like, what? You gave me an insult. I returned it. This is how this goes. Why are you crying? And then she left school early that day. The teacher came and said, Ben, you can't do that. You can't talk to girls that way. What? Why? You know? She said that to me, it's the same thing, it's equal. No, 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 it's not equal, Ben, it's not equal, you shouldn't say that anyway, but you cannot say that to a girl. Now, over time, I learned that she was right, okay? And uh, over time, I learned that because I realized guys and girls are different. Um, You don't have to be a brilliant sociologist to know that guys and girls are different. Uh, Throughout my life, I've realized this. Having kids, I've realized this. I have two boys. I love to wrestle them and play with them and body slam them and tackle them. And this is the way that they receive love. This is how they know. Dad loves me because I was sacked by dad today. That's how I know dad loves me. Now, I cannot do that, though, with my wife. All right? Jess, I'm home. Boom, tackle, right? (laughs) She's going to think something's wrong, right? And you're going to think something's wrong. If I had a little girl, I couldn't twirl her up in the air and body slam her. And do, I couldn't do that. Now, it doesn't mean it's wrong or right. It's, it's really just we are different. And somewhere in this, you're going to have to figure out how and why we're different. If my five-year-old son, my youngest boy, comes up to one of you today and says, why is it that men and women are different and besides Biology or anatomy? If you can explain to them theologically, biblically, why men and women are different, what are you going to say? Are you gonna? What are you gonna say that's going to help them? Him, uh, really lean into and embrace his future masculine masculinity for the glory of God. What are you gonna to say to him? Well, hopefully, as you would respond to that question, what is it that makes us different? Hopefully, you would be in. Genesis, because that is what we've been talking about in Genesis. If you haven't been paying attention, I want you to go liveintegrity.org. Go back and, and listen to some of these past sermons. But here's what we've said so far about why God has made us differently. First of all, we said men and women were created equally. They're created equally because they're made in the image of God. However, God gives men and women distinct roles. God gave man specifically two primary roles. One, he was to cultivate. He was to make the rest of the world look like the Garden of Eden. That's how God wanted him to fill the earth. And number two, he was to be responsible. God gave uh, man this one commandment, not to eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, and he was supposed to take that commandment, believe it, and also communicate it to his wife. And so that's his responsibility. That's his role. And then the wife had a specific responsibility. Eve had a specific responsibility. She was to be man's helper. And the word we actually use is ezer, which is a word that God uses to demonstrate his love for us. He is our helper in time of need. Uh, The Hebrew word was actually used for God to explain how he interacts with with the Israelites. I I am your helper. And so we said this is not a demeaning term. In fact, it's a very enduring term that God gave to the female. And so both male and female were given this equal um, uh, image of God, but they have distinct roles and both were supposed to live out these distinct roles because that is how God invited male and female uh, on his mission. And more specifically, God created man To cultivate in three different ways. First, to cultivate in the work, in the workplace, to cultivate in the home, and to cultivate in the church. And we said, uh, in the last couple weeks, we said, or last several weeks back, we said when men do this, they flourish. And not only do they flourish, but, but the things around them flourish. If you don't believe me, look at every society that is struggling. Some of the most impoverished areas in the world are where children are fatherless, dads don't work, and they're nowhere to be found. When men don't cultivate, societies crumble, but when men cultivate, societies excel, families get healthier, churches get stronger, and this is why this topic is massive, yet it's rarely taught. I have a, a good friend of mine who um, worked with students, uh, college students, and he was uh, going around to different churches and just learning what different churches are doing in regards to uh, how do you minister, how do you relate to college students and uh, My friend met this um, uh, this pastor in, of Denton Bible Church, Tommy Nelson who I, I love listening to actually i 've listened to a lot of things that he said about this issue. Uh, Tommy Nelson uh, is the pastor of Denton Bible church, and it 's kind of a tradition more of a traditional church, not the most church in the world, but it's got tons of college students. And here he is, a man in his 60s, tons of college students in the church, kind of a traditional model. And, they, and my friend asked him, uh, they were at the gym, uh, Tommy Nelson's like just a baller. He's like 60 years old and he's there lifting weights. And my friend's asking him like, how do you have so many college students in your church? And he says, uh, two things. Two things. And he was thinking, okay, we're going to talk about music or fog machines or something like that. And he goes, no, it's just two things. Teach them ecclesiology, which is the, the theology of the church, what the church is and how it should function, how you should live in it. And then the second thing he says, teach them gender roles. Because they need to know where they are going. And so uh, for even for to reach students, Tommy Nelson realized this is a massive topic. And so what I want us to see, though, is why it's so difficult, specifically in our culture, to talk about this. Why do we often want to avoid this topic altogether? And I think the answer is because of what happens in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sin. And what happens in Adam and Eve sin, uh, there's, there's a, not only do we have the problem of sin, the curse of sin that all of us are born into, that we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, but there's also going to be a problem with how we live out our god given gender, but here 's the good news: unless you leave early you 're going to be disappointed. If you leave early you 're going to be disappointed because we 're going to focus on the bad news first. The problem with our our why uh, the fall has messed up how we live out our god given gender, but the good news is the gospel restores All of that. And so uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk through the gospel. We're going to talk about how the gospel then uh, calls us to war against the way that God has, um, to war against the way that sin has caused us not to flourish. And so Genesis 3, we'll look at starting verse 14. Here's what's happened. Man and Adam and Eve sinned. Eve takes of the fruit that God commanded uh, Adam and Eve not to take. The man uh, stood passively by as he watched his wife take the fruit, thinking that she would drop dead. He's talking to, she's watching his wife, Eve, talk to the serpent not protecting her, not loving her, not serving her. And this becomes a problem. And so right there, we began to see the dysfunction of gender roles that happen as a result of the fall, but it continues. Look in verse 14. Then or it says, The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, on your dust uh, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, which is a separation between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Now, there's, God is then talking to the serpent. He's telling the serpent, what's gonna happen? I'm gonna crush your head. Then we see this redemptive story that we even talk more about next week of uh, the one who would crush his head would have his heel bruised. It's a promise of a redeemer that would happen as a result of sin. Now in verse 16, then he switches gears and he begins to address not just the serpent, but the woman and then the man. Look at verse 16. To the woman he said, okay, this is all because of sin into the world. This is where where he goes. Because sin entered the world, this is what's going to happen to you ladies. I will surely multiply your pain. your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. What about to the men? He says to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree which I commanded you, uh, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. To return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living things. Now, what we see, specifically, I'll start with the men. What we see in verses 17 through 19 is a stark stark contrast between what we saw in Genesis chapter 2. What you saw in Genesis chapter 2, specifically in verse 15, it says the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. But what happens because of sin? He says it. He says, because of sin, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life, and it will bring thorns and thistles on you. He says you will sweat for the rest of your life as you try to cultivate. In other words... Adam, you're no longer given everything that you want. You have to work for it. Food is no longer just given to you. You have to work for it. And guess what, Adam? It's going to hurt really bad. And your tendency is going to be to avoid it. And when we think back in chapter two of Genesis, we we made these two statements about God and how he created men. Men were, first of all, to bring order from chaos. The world was rugged and untamed. He was supposed to make the rest of the world look like the garden. Bring order from chaos. That was one thing. And we said that men were to cultivate. In other words, they're to leave things better than the way that he found them. And what he's saying here in Genesis chapter 3, what God said to the man is now because of the fall you want to avoid order and chaos because it hurts and it's painful when you jump into it. It's thorns and thistles. And so not only do we inherit sin from our first parents, Adam and Eve, but men, we inherit passivity from Adam. We run from chaos. This is why it becomes increasingly more difficult to challenge men to take responsibility. Or if they do, it's just an area that makes them the most comfortable. So the man who uh, cultivates well at work, but he abandons his family emotionally and spiritually, that's being passive. I've seen guys who try to avoid work by doing something just Just good. I've seen guys in seminary where I've been in Bible college and seminary, and they they don't want to get, uh, quote, a real job. So they'll go into seminary thinking, well, this is a good thing. I can do this so I can avoid real work. And then what happens, it's real work. School is real work. It's hard. Ministry is real work. It's hard. And so what happens, they'll get burnt out. And they'll last about two or three years working at a church, and they'll get burnt out because it's hard. It's thorns and thistles. The ground is cursed. And so, men, this is our natural tendency. We have to see that. God has created us to cultivate well in the workplace, in the home, in the church. This is where, uh, in the Bible, chaos happens. And this is where God calls order to take place. Men, he's calling you to bring order to these things. But this is where men will often run. This is why many men will prolong their adolescence. This is why more women finish high school than men, finish college than men. This is why more women today in our country have more jobs than men. This is why there's more men in prison. This is why women today struggle getting married because it's difficult to find a man as a suitable partner. Because what they end up finding is just a boy who can shave. One third of men in their 20s and early 30s live with their parents. This is a 100% increase in the last 20 years. Professionally men between the ages of 14 or I'm sorry 18 and 42 will change their careers 11 times. The average age of a video gamer is 35 years old. Average age of a video gamer is not 12, it's 35. There's nothing wrong with video games, however, Men, we will run to those things because every man wants to fight a battle because that's how God created us, to jump into chaos. But because we are passive, we won't fight a real battle, we'll fight a fake one, do a video game. Instead of getting in better shape and playing a real sport, we want to play a fake one. So we'll play 2K and Madden and we'll talk trash. And even though we've seen technology increase over the last 20 years, I will argue that men use it to hide. And I feel like an old man when I say this, but back in the day, you used to have to ask a girl out, like to her face. You have to interact with her in person. But now there's dating hookup apps, there's Snapchat, there's Facebook, where men can hide behind a profile. And instead of chasing a real woman, men fall into pornography because they don't have the courage to pursue a real woman. And this happens with married men as well. Instead of chasing your wife, you go for the false intimacy and the fantasy of another woman online. So here's what we end up creating. Men who fight fake wars, not real ones. Men who have fake love, not real love. And where does this leave us? Ashamed, insecure, and overwhelmed with fear and defeat. And men, this is what the fall has done. But this is not how God has created us to flourish. And this is not who we are in Christ. So that's the men, but ladies, you're not off the hook either, all right? The falls messed you up too. And this is where I want to have a bigger pulpit to hide behind. Verse 16. <laughs> to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now, that's normally the part where people want to talk about. That's not the most significant thing. Uh, I'm not even going to try to relate to that part of the Scripture, okay? I have no idea, all right? I'm not even going to try. I had a kidney stone once. It was really painful. I heard it was, like, kind of comparable, but I didn't carry it for nine months. It didn't make me vomit that much. Like, I had all these things, like, right? I didn't have three trimesters of a kidney stone, okay? Okay. Um, but I don't don't wish that on anybody. Um, And so I know that it's painful because my wife tells me a lot. Okay, so um, not even going to try. Not even going to try. So here's the thing. What is the second part of 16? Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That's really the weight of it. As men are passive, he says, your desire shall be... For your husband this, this is where the fall has messed you up. and so what does this mean desire for your husband? Well some I've heard some feminist groups say that this means because of the, because of the fall women will have a sexual or emotional desire for uh, their husband and that's not the case at all because sexuality, Uh, Intimacy happened before the fall. Um, That's because that's when men and Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed in the garden. Uh, That's when Moses says uh, the two shall become one flesh. Uh, Sex didn't exist just for procreation. It was for enjoyment and oneness. So that happened before the fall. So it has nothing to do with, because of the fall, now there's a love that she wants to have, an affection that she wants from a man. That has nothing to do with it. The the correct interpretation of this passage, we have to understand what the word desire means in the Hebrew language. Uh, And the way that you want to do that is you try to find where else it's used in Scripture. You want to try to find the closest place that it's used. Fortunately, it's it's just a few verses over in chapter 4. In chapter 4, the same word desire is used, and it's used to describe uh, Cain and Abel's relationship. Cain hated Abel, and Cain was jealous. And notice what the Lord says to Cain about his sin. If you look in verse 6 through 7, he's going to use the same word we just saw in Genesis two or three seventeen. Notice what he says, Genesis 4, 6 through 7. It says this, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do uh, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's, what's the word? Desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, the context of Genesis 4 is he's talking about this idea of, okay, your sin should not get the best of you, but it rules over you. In fact, even in Romans chapter 6, the way that Paul describes sin, he says it wants to master you. It wants to rule you. And so what God was telling Cain there is, look, sin wants to rule over you. Its desire is to take you and to control you. And so what he's saying about the woman, he's saying, listen, because of the fall, your desire is for your husband. Your desire is to rule over your husband. But he's supposed to lead and serve you. And so there's this cosmic battle that's going to go on between you and your husband for the rest of your life. And that's why we need the gospel. And this this point in the sermon, I wish I could come, invite a lady to come up and explain this practically, but the best way I can serve you ladies here is just give you the word. That's my job. But just to give you a few examples of how this plays out, plays out practically, I want to do that. So... Many of the younger guys I have discipled over the years have a lot of identity problems because many of them will say things like this. My dad provided for me my family but never really talked about anything spiritual or emotional. My dad didn't talk to me about girls or sex. My dad didn't talk to me about struggles or really anything, but my mom did all of that. And what I've found is that many young men don't have a dad as a spiritual leader, but they have a mom as a spiritual leader. And in many southern homes, I've seen the mom confide more in the kids than in, than her own husband. And a lot of this is because of what we see in the text, a desire to control. There's so many examples I could use about this. I could You could sh- talk about it in dating. You could talk about it in parenting. You could use marriage where... All of these areas, ladies, you're going to see this show up in your life. Most marriages and relationships, there's a breakdown here of passivity and control. Every man and their friendships with other men break down here. This is why men, a lot of men, love a relationship that's really surface level. They love having just a guy friend that, don't, that doesn't challenge them. They don't challenge that guy. So they build the relationship on humor, sports, sarcastic jokes, anchorman tweet, um, quotes, all of that. And they build their life on nothing really deep. And ladies, the same problem with other ladies happens because of the fall control. If you don't believe me, okay, fine. Plan a trip the girls that you are closest to, and let me know how this works because somebody in that group is going to take control and it's going to make the rest of you really mad. She's always hogging the radio. Oh, she gets to choose where we eat. No, 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 and it becomes the issue. Am I wrong or right? Good, okay, one guy said right, yeah. But guys go on a trip and it's completely different. Your wife, you come home, you go on a trip with a bunch of guys. How'd it go, honey? Great. We fished, we played poker, we drank beer. It was awesome. And she's like, did you ask him about such and such? Did you talk to him about how he's doing with his wife? No, No, that didn't come up. (laughs) Didn't come up, why? Because of the fall, because you're passive. That's why it didn't come up. If I'm making you mad men by saying that, I will look for an email from your wife because I know that you won't email me because of this problem. (laughs) And so I'm telling you all this, that there's so much here. I counsel every couple that I counsel uh, that wants wants to get married. I take them through Genesis 2 and 3 because this is so foundational. And here's the sad part. Most people live their entire lives without even knowing this tension. So that is the fall. Men, when you wake up in the morning, you need to look at yourself in the mirror and say, because of the fall, my tendency is to be passive. Because of the fall, my tendency is to run from chaos, to run from order, to run from authority. And, And ladies, when you wake up in the morning, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, because of the fall, my tendency is to be in control. But here's what I want you to see. The gospel is the good news that calls us out of all of that mess and all of that dysfunction, and all of that brokenness. Because in the gospel says, what man created, what God created rather, what God created, man distorted, but Jesus redeemed. Now, let me take you to Ephesians 5. So you can see a picture of how restoration and how gender roles have been restored by the gospel. So here's the breakdown of Ephesians. Paul is talking to the Jews and the Greeks, And he's trying to get them to get along, which is impossible. They're too different. So what does he do? He reminds them of the gospel. The gospel says, in the gospel, it levels out the playing field. The gospel said there is no race greater than the other. Jews and Greeks. There's no race greater than the other. And he's also saying there's no gender greater than the other. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. We're all sinners in need of a savior. And so what uh, Paul does in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is he begins to remind them in the gospel and show them their identity in Christ. If, you, if you're struggling with your identity in Christ, read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 and spend weeks there. It's incredible. It's so dense. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. But then what he does, Paul switches gears after building this foundation of here's the gospel, here's your identity in the gospel. He takes the next few chapters of four, five, and six, and he begins to say, okay, in light of this truth, this is how you're called to live, men and women. And he uses this interesting word phrase. He says, you'll walk in the Spirit. And as you walk in the Spirit, you'll change of what the fall has done in your life. And he gives demonstrations of how we submit to one another. He talks about how an employee relates to his employer. He talks about how children relate to their parents. And then he talks about also, in the mix of all this, about a husband and a wife. And what Paul is doing in Ephesians 5 is he's showing the redemptive work of Jesus and how we treat others. Notice what he says. is completely counter to what we saw happen with Adam and Eve. Ephesians chapter 5, I'll start in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to His wife loves himself. For no one had ever ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Now, here's what Paul does. He takes what Moses says back in Genesis when God created male and female, and quotes it. He says, "Therefore." A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying the whole purpose of it I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, what does the gospel do? The husband isn't doing what Adam did in the garden standing idly by hoping that his wife carries the spiritual weight for the family no what is he doing in Ephesians 5 he's washing her with the water of the word he's preaching the gospel to her he's allowing the gospel to saturate their home he's showing her as holy and blameless she's flourishing in the gospel she's not as Adam and Eve are hiding he's not leading her into hiding He's presenting her as one who is flourishing. This is how invested this man is in their life. He's sacrificially loving her. He's moved out of his parents' house and isn't depending on him, on them to support the family. It says The text says he's left his father and mother and held fast to his wife. How's the wife? She's not trying to control. She's trusting her husband. It doesn't mean that she's a doormat. It doesn't mean that she doesn't have an opinion. It doesn't mean that she follows blindly or follows an abuser. No, that's not the Christ in the church. The context of Ephesians 5 is both the man and the woman are walking in the spirit. And because they're walking in the spirit, they look very different than the flesh. And so the man here is called to be Jesus, the picture of Jesus to the church, meaning he is the nail scarred hand servant leader. And a lot of times when I present this text of, okay, you're supposed to lay down your life. A lot of times guys will just go, oh yeah, baby, I'll take a bullet for you. Like if a car's coming, I'll jump in front of the car for you. If you don't do that, man, you're a jerk, right? Don't even ask me to do your wedding, right? That's not the interpretation. It's not just physically dying. That's the easy part. I mean, have you watched Braveheart, Right? It's the easy part. Physically dying is the easy part. It's, it's really diving into the chaos, knowing your wife well, striving to love her, pursuing her heart, chasing her heart. And you might look at me and say, man, that just sounds like girly, pansy stuff. No, bro, it's Jesus. That's what Jesus did for us. He pursued us. He went after us. He died for us. And so for you single guys, you don't have this weight on you like I do. I'm married to my wife. I have this biblical responsibility to love her, to treat her well, to chase her heart, to provide for her. And you don't have that responsibility to your girlfriend or the girl that you you want to date. In fact, the girl that you want to date or is dating, she belongs to her family until you can vow to take responsibility and provide for her. But you can still demonstrate Fighting against passivity in your pursuit of her. That comes from a lot of ways. One is how you treat her body and respect her as a woman. But also I tell every single guy who wants to date a girl to be courageous courageous and intentional. Intentional is one of those words that sounds right, but no one in Christian culture has any clue what it means, so I will clear it up. The intentional man repeatedly and constantly goes first and takes on all the risk of rejection. That's what Jesus did for us. The intentional man always lets the girl know where he stands so she feels secure and isn't left guessing. Now, I've made for you a list, men, of what is intentional and what is not intentional. I'm gonna go over some of these things for you. This is free of charge. list here. You can not email me this one. I'll, I'll email this to you. Approaching her initially. Intentional sounds like I would like to take you out on a date. That's intentional. Unintentional is want to hang out sometime? My roommates are gone this weekend. That's unintentional. Paying the bill. Intentional is I've got it. Unintentional is can you cover half the bill? I'm pretty broke right now. You're worth about $20, not $40. That's unintentional. Following up after the day, I had a great time tonight. This is intentional. I had a great time tonight and would definitely want to do this again. I will call you this week. Unintentional. I'll call you sometime. Uh, when things are going well, intentional. I think you are a godly, beautiful woman. And I have a, I had a great time with you. I would like to pursue a relationship with you, unintentional. So, what do you think about us? I'm not sure where you, where we stand. What about you? That's unintentional. Things that look like they could go well for a long time. Here's unintentional or intentional. I don't date for the sake of dating. And marriage is a long ways away, but I couldn't be happier of how things are going. I think you are amazing. That's intentional. Here's unintentional. Things are going okay, I guess we will see. Recognizing the end of the relationship. Here's how you intentionally do that. I'm sorry, I don't see this progressing past friendship. Here's unintentional. Time's passing, cold shoulder, you stop calling see the difference. Ultimately, the unintentional guy's responses are selfish because they put his interest before the woman's, and they, moreover, cowardly because he avoids addressing where the relationship is, leaving the woman marooned in relationship limbo. The man in the relationship should always have the answer for these three questions— what is the relationship? What are your intentions? And how are you demonstrate those, demonstrating those intentions right now? And all God's women said, amen. amen. All right. And so the intentional man, he takes on all the risk of rejection. And if you leave these ladies guessing, and I'm catering this more to single men right now. I'll get to you married men in just a minute. And ladies, The ladies are left guessing in situations like this, and they'll freak out, and they'll find someone who knows something about you and figure out, okay, is he interested in me or not? Right? She'll figure out who your cousins are and who your second cousins are, and she'll go to that guy's work and go, oh, wow, I didn't know you worked here. And she'll find out where you're, and she's gonna find out, all right? It's not good. And so this is where our sin, it leads us to these places of more insecurity. So when I bring you back to these gender roles and where God wants you to be, I'm trying to get you to flourish. Godly women really want to be pursued. Immature women want to play games. And my boys are old enough to date when they're 30 years old. (laughs) I'm going to tell them, boys, find the most beautiful woman who loves Jesus more than anything else, get to know her and ask her out, but you need to take a risk when you do it. And this is what the Bible is full of. The Bible is full of God coming to men and asking them out of their passivity and into a risk and into chaos. He calls out incapable, passive men to lead Israel, Even if you look at just a few chapters later, you're going to see a guy named Abram. Abram, he says, Abram, you're going to be the father of many nations. And Abram's like, yeah. And then a few chapters later, what happens? The Egyptians see him and his wife traveling, and they look at his wife, and they say, man, she's a pretty lady. He goes, oh, that's my sister. Please don't beat me up. That's Abram, the father of many nations. It goes on and on. You go to Moses and look at his passive. He didn't want to speak publicly. He didn't want to stand up to Pharaoh. But what happens? God says, nope, you're going to do it. You get to the judges and you look at the characters and judges on and, on and on. Every single character from Samson to Gideon, to every single character, they're all passive men that God calls out and uses them in a mighty way. Gideon, his name is Mighty Warrior. Awesome name. Name my youngest son that. But Gideon was hiding in a rock. And he was the most quiet, most passive man in all of Israel. He goes, no, you're a mighty warrior. You're going to come out and win this for us. Me? What? Yep, You? I'm going to do that for you. And you're going to keep walking through the Old Testament. You're going to see the same thing. Passivity with men, control with ladies. And then you're going to even see it, even when Jesus, with his disciples of who he chooses to be his disciples, he chooses fishermen and tax collectors, bottom of the barrel kind of men. And then even when Jesus resurrects from the grave, who is it that's yelling and shouting in the streets that Christ has risen? It's all the ladies. Where are the men? hiding from the Romans, hoping that they don't get found out, that they know Jesus Christ. But here's the beautiful thing. God comes to those same men, Peter and John. He says, you are gonna be the pillars of the first church. You're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're not going to act this way anymore. And so men and women, what God created Man distorted, but Jesus redeemed. So my question for you is, is this, how is God redeeming you in this way? Ladies, how is Jesus redeeming this area of your life where you want to control? How are you trusting God with results? How are you being still and knowing that he is God? Married ladies, how are you trusting your husband to lead you? Men, Where are you passive? Where are you leaning into the gospel in this area of your life? And so let me just speak specifically to to married people right now. I I talked to single people already, but let me just talk to you married people just for a moment. I'm sure those of you who are in here listening to this right now, and there's a list of things that are going on towards your spouse. I'm sure you men have lots of stories and ways that you can tell your wife how she tries to control things. I'm sure she has lots of ways that she can tell you that you're passive, no doubt. And to be honest, if both both are there, both are there. Somewhere, ladies, you're controlling. Somewhere, men, you're passive. Both are there. And some of you single people in this room, I'm sure you're sitting there right now and you can think of how this relates to other people, most likely even in this room, maybe even me, and you're probably right. But here's the thing I want us all to do this morning. I want us to respond genuinely, individually by asking the Lord this, where am I in this, Lord? Where am I passive? Where am I taking control? And I guarantee you whatever the Spirit of God reveals to your heart, I guarantee you that's the area that the Lord wants you to surrender to Him this morning. And so it's my hope that He will and that God would do a restoration in our hearts this morning. And it would allow us to Appreciate and cherish the gospel all the more because what God created, man distorted, but Jesus redeemed. We have much to celebrate in Christ. There's a restoration in the gospel. Let's pray.